you have your Bibles with you, I invite you now to turn in them to the book of Titus. And if you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the seats in front of you. You can grab that and you can use that. We'll be in Titus this morning. And while you're turning there, I just want to say a couple of things. One, uh, thank you so much for this incredibly warm welcome that you have given to me and to my family as we have made the transition to Sioux Falls. We are grateful. We're grateful from the very beginning when uh, a, a large number of people came to help us unload our truck, and we, we, we unloaded this big truck in no time at all, and uh, there were people even in our um, basement putting things together for us. Um, we didn't expect any of that. We were super grateful for all of that, but it, beyond that, the, the warm texts and comments and calls and drop-bys, all of those things have been very, very encouraging to us, and we are thankful as a family for your warmth. We are glad to be here. We're super excited to, that the Lord has led us here, and, and we're here now, and we're thankful. And it's been great to get to know uh, Pastor Dana and the other staff. I've, I've really, really enjoyed getting to know uh, Pastor Thomas and Pastor Dave and, and others. Uh, it, this has been just a really nice time, and again, just very thankful. All right, so today our text is going to be Titus, and the passage is uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So I'm going to read that now. Let's read it together. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I, we, I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's pray again. Father, we acknowledge before you our need of you this morning. We need for you to move in our hearts so that our hearts would be genuinely moved. We know that that doesn't come artificially. We need you. We need your help. I need your help. I stand here aware that I am not sufficient to bring about the kind of change that you desire in your people. That comes only by you. I'm not sufficient. I'm not worthy. But I don't stand in my sufficiency. I don't stand in my own worth. I stand in Christ. And we come before your word And we pray together, Father, that you would move in the hearts of your people here right now. You would do all of the kinds of things that we need most this morning. Encouragement where there's discouragement. Strength where there's weakness. Hope where there's hopelessness. Joy where there is grief. Father, I pray that you would move. I pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted. And I pray that as we leave here, we would be clinging to the cross of Christ that our hope would be there and there alone. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the way that you're moving here. Thank you for your kindness towards us. Thank you for your grace. Lord, I also pray for my brother back in Shadron, Pastor Sam Parker, as he preaches his very first sermon in just a few moments as pastor. Pray that you would help him to preach well and exalting Christ through your word. And I thank you for the way that you have provided for Ridgeview Bible Church as well. You're so good. You're so kind. And now we turn to your word and we need a word from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Christian, as you get up in the morning... Like, say, this morning, 
and you begin your day, what is it that gives you hope and confidence today, for today, and for your future? What is it that makes you feel secure and assured in God's love for you and his ordering of your life? What was it today? Well, that's where we're going this morning with this awesome little paragraph. We're looking at the promise of our never-lying God. A promise that he made before the ages began. And the aim is so that we would have rock-solid confidence. That we would have hope in him. That was Paul's aim when he wrote this. And this is our aim this morning as we consider it together as a church. Today we're launching a new sermon series on the book of Titus. We'll be here, Lord willing, to just before the Advent series takes off. And my plan is for us to work passage by passage through this amazing little letter to Titus. Also today, as most all of you know, or you have guessed by now if you're a guest, uh, I am beginning my preaching ministry today at Faith. And I I love that both of these things are happening on the same morning. It strikes me as so fitting. This book, and specifically this passage, and my start as preaching pastor of faith. And here's why. In these compact and loaded verses, Paul makes it clear to us what his ministry is all about. And in a way, he makes it clear what all of the ministry of the word is about. Titus is one of the three so-called pastoral epistles. Paul is writing this letter to Titus, and like 1 and 2 Timothy, it's mainly about the church, the local church, and pastoral work, the ministry of shepherding and pastoring, hence the title pastoral epistle. And I love that he begins the letter this way, revealing to us what his ministry was about. And really what all of the ministry of the word must be about for the church to thrive and be healthy. And for the faith of God's elect to be strong. Note in verse 1 that Paul is an apostle for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Or you could say, to further the faith of God's elect. That's, that's why Paul was an apostle according to verse 1. He, sent, he was sent by Christ to further the faith of God's elect. Isn't that what... What, why pastors are pastors? Pastors serve to further or strengthen the faith of God's elect. And there are many ways they go about that. But this, I think, is a rather good summary of the aim of pastoral ministry. So I think it's fitting. I think this is a fitting way to begin my preaching ministry here by unpacking together this passage with you. And of course, it's loaded with encouragement for us today. This is loaded with encouragement for our hearts today. It is loaded with a massive promise from God on which we can hang the hat of our faith, the promise of a never-lying God. I plan to make two swings, two, two passes at this this morning. Two points, if you like to take notes by points. The first point is the promise of God from verses 1 and 2, which I believe Paul intends for us to see as the grounds of hope. And the second point is the preaching of the word from verse 3 which I believe Paul intends for us to see as the means by which that hope becomes our settled confidence. The hope that gets us through this life, that gets us through suffering, and the hope that blossoms into godliness. So let's walk through this this way, shall we? Let me read verses 1 and 2 again, just make it fresh 
Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. The phrase, who never lies, it's three words in English, but it's just one word in Greek. And it's, it only occurs here in the New Testament. It's the only place that word comes up. It's an adjective, and it means free from all deceit, completely without any lying, utterly trustworthy. And you notice I keep using more than one word, and that's because English doesn't actually have a word that fits perfectly one word to one word with this word. It's three words, again, in your ESV, because we don't actually have such a strong adjective in English. You could translate it as... In hope of eternal life, you could translate this verse as, in hope of eternal life, which our never-lying God promised before the ages began. It wasn't that long ago in my house where the pinky promise was the standard of promise-keeping or testing to see if what someone was saying was true, at least with one of my children. So if, if, if my daughter suspected me of teasing or joking when I promised a certain thing, if I promised to say that we'd go for ice cream later, or if I said, hey, the company's here, uh, if she doubted or she thought maybe I was joking, she would extend her pinky. And, and that would mean we, we would have a pinky promise. And that made it so that, you know, she could trust that what I was saying was true. She could trust it. And I think that's a good standard, don't you? But it's not enough for a lot of people. On Friday, I promised a man that I would return to buy something of his. I had to go to the bank. It was a vehicle we were looking at for my son. We, we looked at this vehicle. I had to go to the bank to secure the cash, and I told him I have to go. It was a Mitchell, because that's where my bank is for some reason. Um, and so I, 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 I told him, hey, I, we're going to come back. But I didn't want to drive all that way and then drive all the way back and then him sell it out from under me, right? So, uh, and he wanted assurance that I was actually coming back, right? So you know what we did? We, we shook hands. We, we, there's a handshake. He needed that assurance. I, the handshake for us was the assurance that we would both honor the deal that we had just made. But a handshake isn't enough for everyone, for a lot of people. Recently, I secured a new mortgage, a big loan to buy a house so that my family and I could come and live in Sioux Falls. And sadly, the lenders, lenders were not satisfied with my offer of a pinky promise. <laughs> and even a handshake was insufficient to give them assurance that I would pay it back. To ensure my honesty and to protect their interests, they did credit checks and they vetted my financials. And in the end, they attached a legal lien on the title of my house so that my house becomes collateral should I default on the loan. In our culture of promise-making and keeping, you have everything from pinky promises to handshakes to house liens to ensure that one making a promise will carry through on his word. And people break those promises all the time. All of those. Sadly, even the pinky promise isn't absolutely secure. When God made this massive promise to you and to me, he didn't offer his pinky, didn't offer a handshake, didn't offer collateral to ensure that he would keep his promise. You know what he did? Here's what he did in two parts. God promised, and he did so before the eternal ages. It was God who never lies, 
who promised his elect eternal life. There is no promise more secure than the one that God makes because it's God who makes it. And God never lies. God never lies. He is the never lying God and the promises he makes are eternally secure. They never fail. The writer of Hebrews teases it out in a similar way and for the same purpose, to help us be assured of God's promises to us. Hebrews 6, 13-14. You don't have to turn there, but I'll just read it. It says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. When God makes a promise, it is sure simply by the nature of it being God who makes the promise. Our never lying God has promised. And in our passage, Paul makes the point that God made this promise before the ages began, or literally before times eternal. This isn't the first time he used that phrase, before the ages began. In 2 Timothy 1.9, why don't you flip back a couple of pages to 2 Timothy 1.9. If you'd like to hear this, Paul, Paul wrote in 2 Timothy 1.9, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. I mean, feel the glorious weight of that, friends. God saved us and called us to a holy calling because of his own purpose and grace given in Christ Jesus before the ages began. The reference to before the ages began is intended to make us feel secure in the promise of God. Now think with me about how that reality, that truth, should give you confidence this morning. The reality that God had his mind set firmly before the ages began to give his elect, you and me, if you are in Christ today by faith, eternal life. How does the truth that God promised eternal life to me before the ages began give me assurance? Can you look back at some extremely small circumstance in your life that happened and that turned out to hold like big influence, massive influence or sway over the entire course of your life? Looking back in my life, I can think of several, you know, several little things that happen that make a big difference in the way that my life goes. And here's one, and I think it's fitting because it pertains to how I became a believer in Christ. When I was 15 years old, I found myself on a bus on the way to a Christian camp called Centrifuge in Greenville, South Carolina. It was a Southern Baptist thing. Why I was going to this camp is a story in itself. Um, I was not a Christian. I actually did not have a very high opinion of Christians. I didn't have a high opinion of God. Life had been rough, and I was angry, and I didn't think that the hope of Christ held any real significance. Never really, perhaps, thought of it that deeply. The bus stopped somewhere. We're on this bus, a bunch of youth group. I didn't know anybody. I was new. All the, they were all Christians singing Christian songs on the way up. I was like a rebel, and I, but I was on that bus, and the bus stopped somewhere for fuel, and we all went into this gas station to use the restroom and buy some snacks. Now, I think I can safely share this next part because the statute of limitations has surely expired by now. 
While I was in the store, I shoplifted something small. It was a pack of cigarettes. I don't even know why I don't smoke. I don't know why I didn't smoke then. And I don't know why I did that. Uh, Actually, I do. I, I know why. I did it because I wanted them to know. I wanted them to see me in a certain way. Like this rebel who doesn't care about rules. And I thought, this is the way I'll show them. I'll steal something when no one's looking. And so I let them know. Well, on the first night of the camp, the speaker talked, you know, we get to the camp, everyone unpacks, we're, we're, we, we go to these plenary sessions where, where somebody speaks, there's a big, big camp, a lot more people than are in this room right now, and the preacher is preaching, and he's preaching on the good news of Jesus Christ. That's, that's how he started. And to help us understand why that news is so good, the preacher talked a lot about our sin, about human sinfulness. And he chose a certain sin to be a kind of representative sin. You know how people do that? A kind of representative sin as he discussed what sin does and how it separates us from a holy God. You know which sin he chose? Stealing. If you've ever stolen, he said, you're at odds with a holy God. You're a thief. You've broken God's law. If you've ever stolen, even something small... That means that you, friend, are a sinner in need of God's mercy and grace. I'm sure that it was because of that example that I perked my ears and I decided to listen to that sermon. I did not listen to sermons. I think think filling my heart and mind was the undeniable reality that I was a thief, that I had stolen, like the day before. And for the first time in my life, I realized that I was a sinner in need of God's grace and mercy. It was a glorious night. It was wonderful. I repented of my sin and trusted in Christ that night. Nothing in my life has been the same since. Now consider how fragile that story is, okay? How fragile the details of that, those turn of events are. It was crazy that I was even at that camp, that I had even agreed to go to this camp. That, that, that in itself was fragile, but what if I had not stolen those cigarettes? Would I have listened? Would I have been in a place where I was like convicted of my own sin if I was still s- steeped in my self-righteousness? Or would I have scoffed in the way that I normally scoffed at the things that Christians said? At that fuel stop, I could have just stayed on the bus. Or I could have used the restroom or bought a soda, but in my foolish young mind, in a quick moment, I thought, you know what? I'm going to show these peeps how cool I am. Watch this. How fragile a story, fragile little events that absolutely changed the course of my entire life. Like, my whole life. If I had, if I had gone any other way, I wouldn't have listened to that sermon. I maybe never would have trusted in Christ. Just thinking, like, as humans think. And think how differently my life would be today. All the different experiences. The the way I met my family, my wife, and all of those things. So fragile. You know, so fragile, it almost feels like luck. Fragile circumstances that simply went a good way. And then the whole scheme of things, in the whole scheme of things, it turned out really well. But according to this, it was not luck at all. God 
before the ages began, set his saving eye on me for reasons completely in himself. He didn't look and think, Mike's good. Mike has potential. For reasons in himself, before the ages began, God decided, Mike is mine. All of those tiny circumstances coming together at just the right time and in just the right moment and just the right way were simply God's providential means of graciously keeping his promise made before the ages began. It doesn't look or feel fragile when I consider that in light of Titus 1-2. My testimony in light of Titus 1-2. It feels rock solid. Titus 1-2 shapes the way we look back. And it even shapes the way we look ahead. The reality is that I do not know what tomorrow holds. And neither do you, friend. You don't know. You don't know what tomorrow holds. A lot of us think we do. A lot of us make all kinds of plans. Talk in such a way that makes it look like we just know where this is going. But we don't know. And we're often reminded of that reality, aren't we? We don't know. We don't know what tomorrow holds. Circumstances are as fragile as life is fragile. But this verse gives us hope because we know that it isn't fragile at all. A pinky promise is fragile. Handshake deals are fragile. Collateral for a loan is fragile. The eternal promise of our never lying God is not fragile. What an encouraging word our brother, Dr. John Piper, brought to us last week on this point. The sovereign, sustaining grace of God is not fragile. It is sure. There is nothing in the universe more sure than God's word. Nothing. Oh, friends, as you look back at your life and see the way that God has moved to give you hope of eternal life, if you are in Christ by faith, you ought to have strong confidence in Him. And you ought also to have strong confidence as you look forward to whatever it is ahead for you. Your hope does not depend on the fragile things, that, the circumstances working out the way that you hope that they will. Your hope does not rest on a doctor's appointment going a certain way or a judge deciding a, an issue a, the certain way that you want them to or the HR department at your work making certain decisions or any of the... Thousands of fragile as feather circumstances going in the way that you want them to go. Your hope rests in the promise that a never lying God made. A promise that he made before the ages began. I don't know about you, but as I studied that phrase, before the ages began, my first question was like, when exactly was that? I want a time frame. I want a reference point. I want a definite point of time that I can point to, hang my hat on. That's when God decided that. When did God set his saving eye on his elect? And when did he make that promise? At what time exactly before time began? Silly question, right? At what time exactly before time began did God do that? It's not a question that we can answer. God did not do this in time. He did it before time, and that is mind-blowing to us because our whole entire experience and existence rests within the framework of time. But Paul does give a reference point for when this promise was revealed to us, doesn't he? Look at, look at, look at the first phrase of verse 3. And at the proper time, so this promise was made out of time, and at the proper time, God manifested in his word. 
So, saving grace was determined in the mind of God before time began, but God revealed this determination in time and space at the proper time in His Word. There's a lot of wonder here, and we could spend a lot of time unpacking it, but quickly, by revealed in His Word, do you think Paul means the Word, like the Word that's mentioned in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, and then verses down there, verse 14, 114, The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've beheld his glory. Is that the word he's talking about? Does he mean that this promise is revealed in Jesus? Or by revealed in his word, does Paul mean God's word, the Bible? Like the way we normally talk about this book, God's God's word. Is that how it's revealed? Is that how it's manifest? Or does he mean, as he seems to suggest in the next phrase, God's word that he Paul preached, the the message that Paul mainly preached his whole life, the message of the gospel. And of course, the answer to that is, is, it's yes, all three of those. The proper time that God manifested the saving promise to us refers in different ways to all of those things. It is the word that was made flesh. Last week, I hope you caught it, Dr. Piper quoted 2 Corinthians 1.20 several times. All of the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. The promise that our never-lying God made before the ages began to grant eternal life to his elect finds its yes and its amen in Christ. And you can see that right here in this passage. At least it's implied. It's explicit in the book of Titus, but it's implied even in the intro. He calls God our Savior in verse 3. And then... Christ Jesus, our Savior, in verse 4, the Word is Christ. The promise was manifest at the proper time when Jesus was born and when he lived a perfect life and when he died on the cross for his people, satisfying God's holy wrath against us. And when he rose again triumphantly from the grave, then came the morning, he sealed the promise. Remember singing that a moment ago? This is God saying yes and amen to his promise that he made before the ages began. And, and, and the word is the gospel. It is the message that Paul spent his life preaching. This is the message that was entrusted to Paul to preach. Every, every time you hear this message preached, it is God manifesting or revealing his eternal promise. And that's what Paul did. The word is explained to us so clearly in God's word, the Bible So it is all of those options that I offered you all at once. You cannot wrap your mind around the timeless nature of the saving promise of God in the mind of God, the timelessness of that, but you can see with eyes of faith how it is revealed in the proper time in Christ, in the gospel, and indeed in the preaching of the gospel by his word, the Bible. It is a promise that was manifested through the preaching of Paul, and that's where he goes next in In verse 4, it is when that word is preached that it is revealed to us. As Paul says in verse 4, it is manifest through preaching. Paul preached the gospel, right? And it was Paul's understanding that it was that this is the way the gospel is revealed. It is made manifest to God's people. This is why we preach. This is why I'm preaching this morning. This is why you're hearing a sermon this morning. This is why when we gather as the body of Christ, there's preaching. This is, the, this is why Titus 1, 
1 through 4 was written so that God might reveal his saving grace to us. God's promise was manifest by those means, by the means of preaching. It's still manifested that way. It is today. Friend, if, it might be being revealed to you for the first time this morning. It might be. Have you ever thought of that? I don't know why you came here this morning, some of you who are visiting. You, 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 you might have just off of like a fragile little decision. I think I'll go to church today. That's what I'll do. And, and there's one. It's by my house. I'll go there. I know a friend there. Maybe God has brought you here this morning on what you thought was a whim. Perhaps it's much more than that. Perhaps it's God's grace to you so that you might hear the word now. Oh, if that's you, I hope that you will trust in Christ today. This is an introduction to a letter. In verse 1, Paul calls himself a servant of God. Right? When you introduce a letter, you talk about yourself. And so he is introducing himself, especially the ancient letter. Paul calls himself a servant of God. That means that at the center of Paul's life was not his own ambitions and dreams and desires and pursuits, but rather God's. A servant pursues what his master wants, right? His master's ambitions are his ambitions. A servant doesn't have his own. And he is an apostle, one sent of Jesus Christ. He is God's servant and he is Christ's apostle. The foundation behind him writing this book to Titus is him being a servant and him being an apostle. And note the way he talks of his preaching ministry in verse 4. He says, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God. So, let's put all that together. He's a servant of God. He's sent by Christ to preach this manifestation of God's eternal promise. And he's, he's sent at the command of God. And it is clear that Paul's ministry, if you put all that together, it's clear that Paul's ministry was not about Paul. In the very beginning of his letter, Paul is making it clear, my ministry is not about me. It is about God. It is about God's word. Right at the beginning of this letter to Titus, Paul makes it crystal clear, his ministry is not about Paul at all. It's about God. Now, a brother this morning, we had a prayer meeting this, this morning, and uh, I, I think it was Pastor Dana prayed as we were praying together, and he prayed that we as preachers stand in the shadow of the Apostle Paul. We're not apostles. There's no, that age is past. Um, but pastors who stand to preach, they stand in that shadow. They, they, they are a part, they are, it's a similar kind of ministry. It's a derivative ministry. And I take that, I put that together, and I, I take that to mean that my ministry must not be about me. My ministry must be about God and about God's Word. Indeed, all true, healthy, pastoral ministry must not be about the pastor or a personality or one person or any of that, but about God and His Word. If it becomes about a pastor, the pastor is doing it wrong. Friends, I begin my preaching ministry today, my preaching work among you today. And if it ever becomes about me, then I am doing it wrong. And you should confront me. You should fire me if that becomes the case. The truth is, I cannot give you one tiny ounce of hope by myself. I cannot, by my own light or by my wit or by my cleverness, help you. 
The only hope I can offer you is the hope of a promise that our never-lying God has made before the ages began. That I can give you. And that's not about me. That is about God. He made the promise, the hope of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's what Paul's ministry was all about. That's what the book of Titus is all about. And by God's mercy and grace to both you and to me, what my preaching ministry here will be all about. And you know why that's so good? You know why that is so good? For a lot of reasons, but I'll just give you two ways it's really good for us as I wrap up, which I've mined from this passage, and I will close with this. Grace and peace on the one hand, and godliness on the other. In verse 1, Paul says that the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth accords with godliness. I think that means that our faith in Christ, what Paul was seeking to further, what he has set his mind to strengthen, and our knowledge of the truth, the truth of God's eternal, sovereign, saving grace, should result in lives that are transformed, that are changed. As we'll see, Lord willing, as the weeks go by, a lot of Titus goes there. These are truths that shape us and transform us. And flowing up from that is godliness. There is no such thing of of, like Christianity without godliness. Like, this is not a mental exercise that we are engaging in. Trusting Christ always brings about an increasing measure godliness. They transform us. Hope in Christ transforms us. As our faith grows strong in Christ, we begin to live for the glory of God. And that shapes the the, the things we do, the words we say, the, the loves that we nurture in our hearts. It changes everything. The gospel changes everything. Not all at once, I get that. We grow. But it changes everything, progressively and continually. And then, finally... Godliness in increasing measure is the fruit of faith in the life of God's elect. And then grace and peace. The first thing Paul desires for Titus right in his intro, right? Grace and peace from God the Father and from and Christ Jesus our Savior. Grace from God and peace with God through Christ. All of these things are precious fruits of the gospel. Our lives are no longer tossed about on winds of uncertainty. Our lives are not at the mercy of fragile, changing circumstances. Our lives are governed by and rooted in the grace of God in Christ. And the peace of God that we enjoy because of our Savior, who made peace by taking our place on the cross. So consider these things, friends. I I hope that you will have hope in Christ today. I hope that that's where your hope will be. I I pray that you hang the hat of your confidence in this life on the eternal promise of our never-lying God. We're reminded by it on these signs, aren't we? Christ, our hope in life and death. I, I pray that is your hope this morning. And I pray that as you do that, and as I do that, and as we do that as a church, we will grow in our godliness for the glory of God. So a question, is that your hope today? Is your hope in Jesus and in him alone? Is he your hope in life and death? 
And is it showing an increasing measure in your life by godliness? Grace and peace to you. Let's pray. Father, we long for you to do that work in our hearts. We long for you to transform us by your mercy and by your grace. And we are confident, not because we are good or because we know how to play the religious game or because we know how to check a few boxes. We are confident because you made a promise and your word does not fail ever. You made a promise and you are the never lying God. Lord, I pray that we would leave here with our hope firmly fixed in that promise, the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before the ages began. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.